Welcome everyone. My name is Matt Weinfield, and you've just joined another installment of the Brownfield Brain Trust podcast. I think it's number 12, actually. This is presented by Weinfield and Associates, which acquires properties with contaminated soil and groundwater. Uh, and now for a topic that at first seems really esoteric, but will actually impact just about every facet of site cleanups in California. We are going to get in the weeds about proposed changes to resolution 9249. This resolution conveys policies and procedures to the state water board and their regional boards uh, officials relating to the investigation and cleanup of discharges into groundwater, surface water, and even soil. The topic is much too detailed and cerebral for me to tackle alone, so I've invited two special guests. Environmental Attorney Jay Tefano is here. He's a partner at Ring Bender LLP, and Environmental Engineer Jeremy Squire is also here. He's the Vice President at Murex Environmental. Then let, let me repeat that: Murex Environmental Incorporated. Uh, welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Um, we're going to have hey, some Matt. fun for the next hour or so discussing 9249. And Jay, if you want to start by giving folks a brief introduction of you and your firm. Sure. My name is Jay Tufano. Again, partner at Ringbender LLP. We're a specialty firm focusing on environmental law and tangential practice areas. So that could include water law, land use, public municipal law, real estate transactions. Our primary area of focus really is addressing and resolving liability at sites and waterways with contamination issues that can take several forms. Uh, it can be overseeing environmental cleanups, again, involving sediment, groundwater, soil, vapor intrusion, oil spills. Oftentimes that leads into litigation where we are determining responsibility for cleanup costs that might also take on the form of uh, dealing with enforcement actions. We also get involved in transactional matters involving uh, brownfields, so purchase and sale of impacted properties. And really those cases where we come in, we're, we're helping uh, manage and mitigate risks. We're a West Coast-based firm. So we have offices in Southern California, Portland, and Seattle. And our clients range from Fortune 500 companies all the way to mom and pop shops. Fantastic. And on the technical side of things, Mr. Squire. Uh, thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Um, my practice uh, is Murex Environmental. I'm the operations leader and partner um, here at our Irvine office. Um, we're a small environmental consulting firm, and our clients generally fall into three categories. Um, heavy industry and aerospace companies, commercial industrial property developers, and environmental attorneys. Um, I've been practicing for about 25 years, and my specialty has always been soil and groundwater remediation um, in California specifically. Um, Murex is focused on assessment and remediation of brownfield sites, and our target market focuses solely on California so that we can provide our clients with specialized experience resolving matters under specifically the DTSC and the Regional Water Quality Control Boards. Um, specifically, I meet with staff and managers at the regional boards on nearly a daily basis. And having that exposure to the personnel has provided me with detailed understanding of how their doctrine 
uh, guiding waterboard case management is evolving. And, and I would say evolving for the worse uh, from the perspective of property owners and property developers. Um, so that's just a little bit about Murex and, and about my background. But um, let's get into the discussion of 9249. Yeah, let's do that, uh, especially on that high note. You've just scared us, guys. So, <laughs> so uh, who wants to talk about what exactly Resolution 9249 is? Sure, I'll be happy to give some background on that. So 9249 is a resolution um, adopted by the State Water Resources Control Board in 1992. It was updated in 1996. Um, the document conveys policies and procedures to state board officials and the nine regional water boards relating to the investigation and cleanup um, of discharges into groundwater and surface water. So what are the some of the main principles and requirements in Resolution 9249J? Yeah, if, if I could just walk through that a little bit. So pardon me for reading some notes here, but it, it is dense. Um, so the resolution is divided into several sections, and I'll, I'll just go through a few of the sections, and then we can uh, pause on the uh, main one that's driving our conversation today. So if you look at Section 1, essentially authorizes the regional boards to aggressively investigate to identify dischargers and they're to do that by whatever means necessary so whatever evidence they can find you, they, the idea there is to cast as wide net as possible um, get funding sources uh, for cleanups section two uh, what it talks about is applying a phased approach to investigation to improve efficiency and lower costs where feasible um, it, it authorizes the regional boards to require investigation and cleanup to quote any location affected by the discharge it requires work plans and reports from dischargers and allows regional boards to set cleanup levels quote which are consistent with appropriate levels set by a regional board for analogous discharges that involve similar waste, site characteristics, and water quality considerations. So that was a mouthful, but essentially <laughs> what it's saying is they can look at what the um, scenarios are at other sites, and you're gonna wanna have cleanup objective at, at sites that are similar. Um, so, so if I could jump in here, Jay is diving into some of the details of Resolution 9249 and what it requires the regional boards to do. But I think it's important to just point out here that the sources of statutory authority for the regional boards is not the same as it is for DTSC, even though these two agencies are both divisions of Cal EPA and they both perform similar functions when it comes to oversight of brownfield cleanup. So here's what you have to know. The regional boards get their authority from Porter Cologne, which is the Water Quality Control Act, uh, AKA the California Water Code, um, which is uh, similar in some ways, dissimilar in other ways um, to the Federal Clean Water Act because it applies to groundwater as well as surface water, unlike the Federal Clean Water Act. Now, on the other hand, the Department of Toxics, the DTSC, gets its authority from the California Health and Safety Code, which is essentially California's version of RECRA. Now, that difference is important because the topic we're discovering, uh, discussing today is 9249, and it really just applies to the regional board. It does not apply to DTSC. 
So keep that in mind as we discuss these changing doctrine and what it means potentially for your site if you're deciding on which agency to go to for your voluntary cleanup action. Uh, so back to Jay's explanation. Okay, so getting to section three of the resolution, it starts out by addressing procedures to ensure that the that dischargers have the opportunity to select cost-effective methods. Um, so authorizes the regional boards to concur with work plans that appear likely to achieve cleanup, requires boards to consider the burden, including cost, to dischargers when requiring reports as part of investigation and cleanup. And boards are to ensure that the dischargers are aware of sampling and cleanup methodologies. And some of those are actually set forth in the document itself. <clears throat> then it gets to cleanup requirements. So it starts out with um, the regional boards are not to set cleanup requirements at levels that are more stringent than background levels, but they can require cleanup in a matter that promotes attainment of background water quality or the highest water quality, which is reasonable if background levels of water quality cannot be restored. So if they're going that route for not looking at uh, background levels, then there are some other factors that the regional boards are to look, look at. So in setting cleanup levels, they must be consistent with the maximum benefit to the people of the state. They must not unreasonably affect present and anticipated beneficial use of groundwater. And cleanup levels cannot result in water quality that is less than the prescribed in the water quality control plans and policies adopted by the state and regional boards. I'd like to interject with a, with a question that is really more putting my developer hat on, my investor hat on. I've never in 35 years in this business seen the water board seriously consider cost issues when it comes to uh, remediating a site. Has either one of you successfully incorporating cost issues to maybe uh, stop remediation at a certain point? Uh, I think our listeners would love to hear any case studies around that subject. Um, I'd be happy to answer that, Matt. Yes, the answer is uh, yes. I've successfully lobbied um, the cost angle, but you have to understand how that argument needs to be teed up for the board um, so that they can accept your argument. So there's the doctrine of, of cleanup, which is you need to um, perform remediation to the maximum extent practicable, right? And that line is known, it's accepted by the board, it's known and accepted by the DTSC. And what it essentially means is you have to give the college try to clean up to background standards. And when and if you realize that it's not feasible, either economically or technologically, then you need to make that argument using the language from 9249 to convince them that, okay, yes, we could continue remediation, but the cost would escal escalate you know, astronomically. And so therefore, given the fact that we've removed 99% of the contamination, and there's no unacceptable health risk. Uh, we're not going to tear down that building and go and you know get the last one percent underneath that building because it would be economically infeasible and the and the and the payback would be insufficient. Uh, 
Seems um, like that's a pretty high bar. It, it is a high bar. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't want to take up this whole time talking costs because we have to find out why, what resolution 9249 has to do with brownfields redevelopment. So, okay. So listeners are out there wondering, why should I care about resolution 9249? What does this have to do with brownfields redevelopment? I hear you. There's two big answers. Um, and neither of them bode well for redevelopers of brownfield properties. So first, managers in the Los Angeles and Santa Ana regions, among others, including San Francisco Bay, um, are taking hardline stances when it comes to the adequacy and completeness of assessment and cleanup with what I would describe as sort of a renewed fervor. Um, they're justifying a new level of stringency by pointing directly towards the background concept that's spelled out in 9249. Um, and, and what that means is that really no longer are negotiated cleanup goals going to fly, um, nor will risk-based cleanup goals. So the old standard, uh, for instance, taking the Los Angeles Regional Board, for instance, they had their 1996 cleanup guidebook. And they had soil cleanup goals and approach, which essentially said, you can leave this much in soil behind if it's uh, fuel uh, or VOCs. And we can reasonably assume that that amount in soil will not cause the MCL exceedance over time in the groundwater beneath that soil contamination, um, given the fact that it's this many feet above groundwater in this type of soil and so on. Um, that has essentially been withdrawn. The water board in LA is now saying we no longer follow the 1996 cleanup guidebook. Um, you must at least attempt to go the background uh, cleanup accomplishment. And if you can't, then you have to show us that it's economically or technologically infeasible. So that's that's really the first big reason. And, and under this new doctrine, a responsible party must have attempted to clean up to background conditions first and then demonstrate that to achieve them would be economically and technologically infeasible. So that, that process can add years to your project and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. The second reason that the board staff are in the process, um, or sorry, the second reason that this is important to Brownfield developers is that the board staff are in the process of amending 9249 to codify a new set of requirements related to vapor intrusion. Um, vapor intrusion has been to date kind of the key pressure point used by California regulators to demand further characterization and more costly cleanups. And it has also been one of the main reasons why we are having trouble building affordable urban housing in California. Um, and so with an amended 9249, the pain will only increase for industrial and commercial and even residential developers. Well, that's daunting. So <laughs> let's dive even further. Maybe we can help come up with yeah. solutions in the next half hour. So backing up a little, is 90, Resolution 9249 binding on the public, or is it just a guidance document that the regional boards use for internal use? Sure, I can jump in on that one. So technically, it's it's an internal policy document. It's not a regulation. It was not subject to notice and comment period. It was not officially promulgated. Um, so it, it's not necessarily binding on the public in the same way that a law regulation would be. Uh, but it is a bit of a hybrid, uh, because if you look at Water Code 13146, um, it does say that 
regional boards must comply with state policy when it comes to water quality. So it is binding on the regional boards and the way that the, the boards have construed it is also binding on dischargers. Now, um, could that be challenged down the road? Um, you know, that may depend on how the regional boards carry out the changes that um, Jeremy just talked about. Um, but at, at this point, I, I would think of it as a bit of a hybrid in, in the sense that it's not technically a regulation, but it, it's, it certainly seems to be construed that way. It sounds like it has a pretty significant power to, uh, it gives the regional board significant power to um, oversee these sites. Um, so as, uh, as people uh, remediate sites, there's always this thought that groundwater needs to be uh, cleaned up to MCLs, maximum contaminant levels for drinking water. How does resolution 9249 sort of incorporate MCLs or is it entirely different? It seems to be entirely different. So if we if we take another step back and look at um, standards for drinking water, it, it starts with something called the public health goal. And what that is, it's a concentration of drinking water contaminants that pose no significant health risk if consumed for a lifetime. And that's based on current risk assessment principles, practices, and methods. Then there's something called the maximum contaminant level or MCL. So MCLs are adopted as regulations and they're protective water standards, drinking water standards to be met by public water systems. MCLs are different from public health goals because they not only take into account the health risks from the chemicals, but they also factor in uh, detectability, treatability, and also the costs of treatment. Um, however, they are required to be established at levels as close to public health goals as is technologically and economically feasible, um, placing primary emphasis on public health. Um, so MCLs are an objective standard to clean up to. I, I think the issue with 9249 is you don't have an objective standard. It's it's almost you're chasing after background levels. And then if you can't achieve background levels, um, it's going to be in the discretion, I think, of the, the case manager you're working at and what they think is appropriate for the site. And I, and I think that's where the, the challenges come in because you're you're looking at a moving target. Well, yeah, I when I remediate sites, uh, if I MCLs were always out there, I think, for instance, the MCL for benzene is 10 micrograms per liter or, or one. I, I don't recall. Do you recall? It's one. one. Thank you. Yep. Um, and that was frankly, technically not attainable uh, just uh, because of engineering uh, tools we have at our disposal, hydrogeology, so on and so forth. So it was always some wiggle room. Um, whether it was five times MCL or 10 times MCL, which is still very, very low. Um, are, are those criteria out the window now, or will they be out the window with um, this new uh, 9249 uh, update? It, Matt, I have a couple of uh, on-the-ground experiences that, that will give you sort of a practical answer to that question. Um, the first, as it relates to MCLs and investigation, 
what I have been told several times in the past two years by waterboard staff is that the MCL is not the point at which you stop stepping out to sample. They want mm -hmm. you to continue stepping out to sample for the purpose of assessment down to non-detect. Okay. That And that applies to groundwater, meaning that the MCL is no longer as critical, but it also applies to soil vapor. Yeah, if I could, if I can jump in real quick. So you asked about case studies earlier, Matt. So that was something that uh, our clients encountered at a, a groundwater site where we were being asked to um, sample in areas that were far below the MCL, and, and that turned into a cost benefit fight. Mm, okay. Thank you. So um, I got us in a bit of a um, sidetrack there, but maybe we could talk more about what some of these proposed changes to the cleanup stands are, standards are and the basis for these changes? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, and, the, and the one thing I would point out, the other thing about MCLs, don't forget, is that um, with vapor uh, intrusion being such a concern and the water board asking for step out sampling of, of soil vapor over groundwater contaminant plumes, we have to remember that these low detection limits now for soil vapor are almost creating um, new areas of study because you could have groundwater plume of PCE, it's at the MCL of five microgram per liter. The plume, let's say, stretches under a neighborhood. You will have detectable levels of soil vapor PCE above that groundwater plume as long as you know the groundwater is, is shallow. So the MCL, again, becoming less relevant. Um, okay. So that's something to remember. So vapors are driving everything, it seems. Yeah. But uh, back to your question, Matt, um, what changes are being proposed, if any, and who's proposing those changes? Um, it, it seems like the boards are attempting to make responsible parties clean up to background conditions or prove that it isn't feasible, where board staff are the ultimate judge of that evaluation and, and what's scary about that is that there's no quantifiable standard, right? So every closure request argument becomes almost a qualitative argument. And that means that from cubicle to cubicle, and you know, I'm joking, big right, because the board staff all work from home now, but from, from desk to desk, you may get a different evaluation with different standards. And it's it, that, that that presents a big problem, right? When the government calls balls and strikes, but the strike zone isn't always in the plate in the same place, that creates an inequity in the application of um, the government's oversight of of your of your property. And of course, these are private property owners with with rights, and so it presents a real sticky problem here. Qualitative standards are um, really going to come to a head. And, and there's going to be some some big problems as a result of this. Well, how do you think more specifically the changes will impact owners or developers of contaminated land that are engaged in investigation or considering investigation? Well, there's going to be, I think, a renewed, or I should say, um, you know, the concept of which agency should should we approach is going to be revisited by most principles of development firms and aerospace companies and manufacturers. If they have a new 
uh, case to bring to an agency, they're going to seriously rethink bringing it to the regional boards. Um, second, if sites are already enrolled in the case, and let's say they're underway with cleanup, uh, but they're maybe a year or two years away from completion, this new set of standards is something they're going to have to think about, and they may want to revisit the remediation design, um, knowing that what they originally con conceived as a cleanup goal may no longer be their cleanup goal. Um, take, for instance, a soil vapor extraction system. Um, maybe you want to install some more wells. Maybe you want to install a bigger system. Maybe you want to um, revisit the concept of excavation. Um, these are these are things that people need to seriously think about. Well, um, we're sort of speculating a bit. How who is spearheading the charge, and how long are these uh, ninety two forty nine changes? How long before they take effect? Do we think? Uh, that's really difficult to say. So I know who the task leader is. Um, uh, I believe it's uh, Roshani Dantas at State Water Resources Control Board. So um, as many of you know, the regional boards are independent boards, but they're overseen by the state board uh, seated in Sacramento. And it's staff in Sacramento that's actually working on this amendment. Um, internally, the boards have had meetings to talk about the fact that 9249 will be amended. Um, but as far as the timing goes, it could be one year away, it could be two years away, it could be more. Um, that really has to do with internally how they can make it work. Um, but I think if we want to know what it will look like, we can probably take a look at um, the 1996 update to 9249. It'll probably have that sort of format. And if and if anybody out there is, is searching for what that looks like, I have copies of these documents and uh, you can reach out to me. So in summary, before we talk about some more specifics, um, the State Water Board is spearheading an effort to modify 9249. We, it appears that things are going to get more strict with cl groundwater cleanup goals, driven a lot by vapor intrusion migration and taking some of the flexibility that we had pertaining to MCLs and public health goals away. Um, and that is going to lead to uh, more enhanced engineering systems that some people may debate uh, is not not necessary and provides no beneficial use. So uh, let's talk a bit about transactions as they relate to buyers, lenders, sellers. How do you think that these this update to 9249 is going to impact California's ability to sell sites that have been environmentally sell and buy sites that have been environmentally impacted? Sure, it's going to certainly make it more challenging because if you think about from the buyer's perspective, and I suppose no one knows this better than you, Matt, but if you're out there looking for a property, you're going to want as much data as possible about the site. Uh, extremely helpful to know where that site is in the regulatory process and what might be required to get closure down the road. But if you do not have objective standards to clean up to. Uh, and it's sort of in the hands, as, as Jeremy said, one desk to another of how the site might be interpreted and what those goals might be. Uh, that's gonna create a lot more uncertainty. And that is going to lead to 
um, certainly complicating the deal structure and how you're going to uh, deal with indemnity obligations, uh, hold back agreements and, and the like. So it's, it's going to, um, I, I just think in a nutshell, complicate things. Yeah, I think I want to add to that buyer's perspective. The way things work now is if you don't have title to a property, the regulators are very uncomfortable chatting with you. So due diligence to get specific answers from the regulation, regulators become hard. So it's a catch-22. You have to own the site to have a substantive meeting with the regulator. But if you don't own the site and you're trying to get information to put a value on the transaction, regulators are um, uncomfortable discussing because their feeling is, and to their credit, and in defense of them, well, you're just looking at the site. You don't own it. I don't want to have to go through this five times. So what if this 9249 uh, changes take place, a buyer like I will have to insist that we get regulatory involvement and come up with some remediation, approved remediation action plans and uh, very site-specific cleanup criteria. And so that's going to take 60-day due diligence periods and turn them into a year. And sellers hate that. Uh, many times there are 1031 exchange issues. Maybe someone is ill and is trying to sell the the site before they pass on. There are very, very real issues that uh, can that may not have time for this. So I think deals will die. But I'd love to hear your uh, perspective on lenders and sellers as well. I think it's the, the same kind of situation. So a, a lender is not going to want to lend, um, you know, in a in a situation where there's less uncertainty um, certain about achieving closure and what the regulatory requirements are going to be. So if lending gets tighter, you could potentially see a, a chilling effect on brownfield transactions because, you know, the, the technical side of things certainly drives these transactions, but financing is just as important. It, it is, and lenders tend to be extremely conservative. Even though they have some uh, regulatory protections, if they have to um, take over a site because of non-payment, uh, they're still averse to being involved in a site that doesn't have uh, a path to an NFA. And by way of example, right now, the rule of thumb, the screening criteria for vapor uh, intrusion matters is that you take the concentration of vapors in the subsurface and multiply it by 0.03 because that's the most conservative guidance standard that's out there. But there is some flexibility, and you can negotiate uh, less conservative criteria with the regulators desk by desk. But the bankers say that may happen, but it's not guaranteed. And we have to assume that we're not going to lend to any site that has vapors that exceed the 0.03 times the attenuation factor threshold. And for instance, that's for an industrial site that's 67 micrograms per cubic meter and soil vapors, and banks aren't lending if those values are exceeded. And so if there's going to be more stringent criteria on groundwater concentrations, that's just gonna be another line item for banks to deny uh, loans. Yeah, there definitely the will be there definitely will be a chilling effect, Matt. Um, yeah, and I think that lenders need to be educated by those of us in the um, in the industry, and underwriters need to be educated. Um, and when it comes to 
how to approach these sites, there's going to be some practical matters that we all have to take into account. Um, you mentioned one, which is longer due diligence periods. Uh, another one that comes to mind is more aggressive remedial strategies. Um, three, probably we all need to update our mental models uh, about the time and the cost that one of these sites is going to take to resolve. So, you know, the old idea that, oh, well, we can get this enrolled and uh, get an NFA within two to three years. If it's a VOC site, that's going to be tough to, to deliver on, even if the concentrations aren't, you know, significant. Um, there's also going to be some of those rules of thumb that we used to throw around. Remember in the time when uh, vapor concentrations were compared to chisels, California human health screening levels back in 2010, 2011, um, we had a notion that a dry cleaner might cost 500,000 to 1.5 million to clean up and close. Um, later, around 2017, when the draft uh, guidance came out, a lot of us doubled those or tripled those. And we started to say, well, a dry cleaner now is going to pre pretty much cost 1.5 million to 3 million to clean up and close. Um, it may be time to adjust that up again. Uh, and, and, and when you start to look at the values of small shopping centers and strip malls and things like that, does it even make sense to take on a dry cleaner anymore? Um, so those are some of the rethinking that I, I, I think a lot of us are going to have to do in this industry. Well, let's talk about what could be our savior. Can the insurance save us, Jay? One would hope, but I, I think we'd be looking at, at, at similar hesitancy, right? So if, you, if you've been trying to place insurance in the last couple of years, you know that there are exclusions out there for vapor intrusion. Um, certainly as the insurers get more in tune with um, DVIG and, and they're very sophisticated and on the front lines of all this. So we see the, I've seen that out there. Um, obviously PFOS coming along. So that's another exclusion we're seeing to policies. Um, so I think, 9249 being more front and center is going to add more reluctance um, to the issuance of policies. Um, we've already seen less 10-year policies getting um, offered, so that might result in shorter policy periods and higher premiums. Well, let's try to come up with some good news during this conversation. <laughs> is there any language in 9249 that we think is going to Currently or in the future, leave room for interpretation uh, in the in the brownfield uh, world's favor. I think that there is. I actually wanted to start with a question um, to Jeremy on this point. So there there is some wiggle room in in nine two four nine, but it also starts with background levels. Um, so in thinking about how background levels are set. Um, is there an opportunity, Jeremy, to work with regulators on coming up with what a reasonable level might be that might help get around some of these issues? Well, not so much get around these issues, but I think um, there are there are tried and true approaches to developing a, a, a robust conceptual site model that many of us have preached for for you know decades, um, but become more important now. So for instance, the 
monitoring the establishment of upgrading and groundwater quality and the continued monitoring of upgrading groundwater quality during the time that you're deploying your site assessment and your remediation, I think that becomes even more important. Um, you want to be able to show through a statistically defensible data set that the groundwater uh, quality that is that is coming from upgrading and entering into your study area um, has certain characteristics, whether it's you know residual uh, background concentrations of VOCs or other quality issues that might make it um, less suitable for potable use. I mean, you want to have that ammunition ready uh, when it's time for you to make those arguments. Um, second, I think the concept of you know restoring background. I think that that's um, a narrative that you have to include in your write-ups. So um, a, a, a consultant that's doing a good job writing up these reports and submitting them to the board is giving, and I don't want to call it lip service because it's a serious um, consideration. You need to give serious consideration to the language of 9249 and explain how what you're proposing complies with it. So if that means your primary uh, remedial action objective is background water quality, but your secondary remedial action objective is what is technologically and economically feasible, you haven't really changed what you're proposing, but you've given it to them on a plate that allows it to be accepted. Right, and I think that ties into what you were asking about earlier, Matt, about um, ways to um, structure your cleanup and your your approach with regulators. So, the the first would be, as Jeremy is mentioning, you'd have to build a strong technical case um, that supports the idea that background can't be achieved. So, that would be first, and then you would look at the you would need to look at the other criteria under nine two four nine, which is. Um, consistency with the maximum benefit to the people of the state. And the way I think about that is, is really a, a cost benefit analysis and of um, how far you're going to go with the cleanup, but also ensuring that the cleanup is protective. Um, and then the cleanup objectives need to be consistent with beneficial and anticipated uses. And this one sounds easy, but it's not because um, if you look at at different water bodies, um, especially around Orange County, um, where you have, you know, aquifers and they're in layers, right? And but you know, you've got a, a top layer that that usually is where your your contaminants are, and then you have a drinking water layer that's in the middle, and then you have a, a deeper layer. Uh, and so a lot of times what we're arguing about is is cleaning up um, you know contamination that might be in the top layer. Now that groundwater is not being used for drinking water at this time. So there's there's no real beneficial use. Um, but, you know, the regional board and state boards have come back and said, well, there's, it's anticipated that it could be um, drinking water. And so um, that, and then that frames what your cleanup is going to be. And so that that can be extremely challenging um, to deal with because you're you're not just looking at present uses. Well, along yeah. the discussion of benefits to the people of the state, um, I, I see that the regulators pretty much stay in their lane. They say, okay, we are only going to focus on vapor intrusion and groundwater issues. The fact that you want to build something that benefits 
for other reasons, whether it be a park, whether it be uh, an expanded uh, industrial facility. There's, there really doesn't seem to be consideration of the benefits of the people of the state in that regard. So they seem very, they being the regulators, seem very siloed. And I just wonder if the changes to the water code are going to allow us to bring uh, more arguments along the lines that there are other benefits here. Um, and I don't know how to address that. And maybe I'm just speaking as a greedy brownfield investor, um, but I just wondered if there are any vehicles that you know of that allows other considerations other than strictly environmental to be presented to the environmental regulators. And well, I there are benefits, you know, there are benefits to the redevelopment of, you know, a blighted industrial site. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, you go to the, the city council or the mayor in that jurisdiction and they'll, they'll agree. They'll say, yeah, we're, we're all behind you. What can we do to help? Um, but, you know, today's topic is the statutory authority and underpinning of the regional board. And let's not forget that that's their focus. Um, so, you know, 9249 says water board, you shall do these things in protection of the waters of the state of California. It doesn't say anywhere in there, but take into account, you know, it's nice to have more housing. So I, it may be asking them too much to consider, um, things that statutorily they're not asked to consider. Yeah. So this is also about beyond today's topic, but then you're also bringing in environmental justice questions as well. Well, uh, thank you for bringing me back to earth. Um, now, is there anything you wanted to discuss before we chat about how stakeholders can get involved and conclude our session? Um, well, there are things, you know, we talked a lot about as an environmental consultant in this practice area, what am I pessimistic about? I, I think I've covered those topics. What am I optimistic about? Um, so that we can, we can end on a high note. Um, 9249 and the discussion of the containment policy, the, the discussion of economic and technological feasibility, those things are not going away, right? So a, an articulate consultant who understands the language of 9249 and its, and its guardrails, I think can make a reasoned argument that can be accepted by the board so long as you have a robust conceptual site model, the release is well understood and has been completely assessed, and a, a robust remediation has been attempted. I think if you can if you can show all those things and then you can perform a, a, a thoughtful analysis of where the technological and, and, and feasibility limitations are, uh, you can present something to the board that that they will be able to present to management and you know argue on your behalf. Uh, so I'm optimistic about, I guess, the smarter consultants being successful. I'm not as optimistic because what you just suggested is that I need to remediate site to a certain level, and then I need to be at the whim of a regulator. Yeah. And that is scary, but that's, that's sort of our business. I will say that I'm optimistic that this probably won't come out for two years. So it tells me for the sites I own and I'm managing, I better get them closed up in that time. Yeah. So I think my consultants will be a bit optimistic they're going to get more business in the next two years. Jay, what are you optimistic about with respect to 9249 rolling out? 
I don't think I have much to add to, to Jeremy's point. I think the more communication you can have with your case managers and understanding what they're looking for, I think there's an opportunity there to frame your investigation and your, your plan um, based on the feedback you're hearing. But I, but as Jeremy was talking about, um, you need to be sophisticated in your approach and proactive in, in getting ahead of um, what's around the corner and what the regulators might be looking for. I thank you very much, gentlemen. I think we'll also discuss really briefly how stakeholders can get involved. And um, if anybody is involved, people, developers, um, the regulated community, uh, those in affordable housing should get involved in environmental organizations that are addressing this. Um, so folks that are communicating with the state board as these regular as is 9249 is being um, modified, uh, folks within should reach out to people in, in a position uh, at the state board who are involved in this now. Let them know what they're thinking. I don't know if there's going to there there should be some pub, public comment period. So um, correct, Jay. Well, if it's just a resolution that we're no. talking about, there isn't a notice and comment period, which is, you know, part of the issue we talked about earlier. Which I, I it just dawned on me as soon as I said that that I was mistaken. So you're gonna people have to ha people have to be more aggressive in communicating with the state board now. With um, and then if they don't get any response from that, there are two senators who are actively involved, very actively involved in affordable housing. Uh, redevelopment sometimes on brownfields and those uh, senators are Senator Atkins and Senator Weiner. So if anybody um, wants to take uh, uh, an approach of sharing their concerns with people who can make a difference, I recommend those two. I also recommend that if folks listening have case studies of where the vapor intrusion guidance or some the water code has impeded their development, they reach out to one of us and we can try to help um, with their challenges. Any other ways that stakeholders can get involved, gentlemen? Well, I know that um, you, can, you can definitely provide direct feedback to your case manager and case manager supervisor. Um, the supervisors do feed up to the EPMs within the state boards. What are EPMs? So uh, Environmental Program Manager 1 is a um, title. Uh, so for instance, that person, or people, sorry, there are two now in LA, would be Art Heath and Jillian Lee are the EPM ones. Uh, they uh, collect, the two of them collectively manage the six site cleanup groups for the Los Angeles Regional Board. Um, uh, Mona Behrouz is the uh, new EPM for um, Santa Ana region site cleanup group. Um, you can give them direct feedback about, uh, and, and honestly, don't burden them with, with complaints. Uh, the best, best thing to do is to feedback to them with, we are having a difficult time illustrating how we are complying with 9249. Could you, could you help us with this? Um, or we think that there's a misunderstanding about how our site complies with 9249 with our case manager. Would you sit down and meet with us to discuss how we can um, document this in the in the most efficient way? Um, they're always going to stick up for their case managers. So never, never try to, you know, 
um, separate them or go over their heads. The, really, the key is to work cooperatively and to understand that the regional boards have to. They do not have a choice. They have to comply with 9249. And so it's really um, a collective goal of how do we document that we are complying with 9249? And so, you know, don't be afraid to reach out to the EPMs um, for that kind of request for assistance. And I would say one way to be, to help you as someone who is uh, being regulated by the state water boards and the regional boards is just to ensure that their attorneys and consultants know what 9249 is. You'd be amazed how folks are just not familiar with it, even though it's the underpinning for how the regulations take place. And uh, I think this is a wonderful time to close our shop today. And I wanna thank uh, Jeremy Squire and Jay Tafano for all the wonderful research they've done. Um, their information will be available on my website. And Jeremy, how, how can folks get a hold of you? What's your um, email? You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, my email is Jeremy Squire, my full name, at Murex, M-U-R-E-X, and then the letters E-N-V, short for environmental.com. And Jay? Same thing. You can find me on LinkedIn, and you can find me at Ringbender at the letter J, Tufano at ringbenderlaw.com. Well, this has been riveting. I've had a good time. Uh, thanks, guys, for taking part in the Brownfield Brain Trust podcast. Be safe, everyone listening, and we look forward to talking again soon. Good luck, Thank everyone. You. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Thank you.